Sometimes I reflect on the age in, in which we live and I'm astounded by what we are capable of doing. You know, think of the smartphone with apps that I learned about this past week, an app that you can uh, turn on to listen to the sound of a bird and it can tell you what bird you're listening to. You can aim your phone at flowers and trees and your phone can recognize them and that's the kind of help that I need personally and so I'm glad my phone can help me with that. You can get a Kindle and you can download an entire library of books to have at your fingertips anywhere in the world that you are. There are glasses that you can wear on your eyes that can correct color blindness. It's amazing. And if I think about music, you can be anywhere in the world, and if you have internet access, you can access any song by any artist that's ever been produced at any time. There are self-driving cars. That's amazing to me, also somewhat frightening. Um, And even the Hubble telescope has seen billions of light years into space. And I, I think about what we're capable of in our culture, and it's impressive. But of all the technical and amazing capabilities we have, it does not imply at all the presence of biblical wisdom. We're a culture that can do much and that has much, and we have a wisdom deficit across the board. Wisdom. This is what we most deeply need. You can have much and do much and not be wise. And what we most profoundly need is the wisdom of God in God's world. That's a key to understanding what wisdom is anyway. It's not street smarts. It's not just someone who's quite clever or savvy. Wisdom, according to Scripture, is being able to live in the world God has ordered. To live in God's way. In God's world. We find out the ways of God in His Word. He's made known His will and who He is and what He's made the world for. And I I think this means then, if we want to walk wisely in God's world, we have to believe what He says in His Word, which means we have to know His Word. It's vital for living wisely. This is one of the reasons I love Proverbs. This book is so brilliant because it covers so many subjects in the world we live in. If you read through Proverbs, you're going to get the distinct and correct impression God's word is for all of life. And that is true. He calls us to submit all of our life to His glory in all things. And this is such good news because the path of foolishness and the path of rebellion leads to ruin and misery and eternal condemnation. God is kind and merciful by making Himself known in His word. That we could hear His Word and believe His words and walk wisely in His world. So as we turn to a new chapter in Proverbs, we want to remind ourselves that we need our hearts constantly oriented toward God's world and Word. What will glorify and honor Christ? We need to know this and our hearts be oriented by it, to, to it by the Word. And I think this is because if we're honest, we all know we can drift. And I wonder if this morning you've come into this place on the Lord's day knowing that spiritually you are adrift. And you know this, what I'm about to say, you have seen it resonating in your own life. If you think you're going to coast into greater joy in Christ, or if you're going to coast into greater delight in God's Word, the circumstances of life will soon disabuse you of that notion. The prowling devil and our inward temptations and the deceptions around us all work against us. And a life of wisdom 
will result from the daily and deliberate pursuit of Christ. So my plea with those of us who gathered in this place this morning is that you would pursue Christ and not think that you will coast into a manner of pleasing God in the world He has made. You must know Christ. And in coming to understand more of Proverbs, we understand what God, by His Word and in His Son, has revealed for the Christian. The Old Testament is Christian Scripture. So as we turn to the book of Proverbs, and in chapter 13, we want to walk in the light with Jesus, and Proverbs helps us. Proverbs 13, Lord willing, will help us grow as disciples. In the knowledge of Christ and what it means to be faithful. The wise person doesn't just want to hear. The wise want to internalize and respond to what they've heard. The wise doesn't just consider biblical instruction in one ear, out the other, or filtering it based on what we would approve of and like and rejecting what we don't. We repent of sin and pursue righteousness. The wise want this. Like all of the Bible, the book of Proverbs is for your discipleship. Solomon is the writer, with the exception of just a few chapters near the end. Solomon is a son of David, and one greater than Solomon walked this earth. Jesus says in Matthew 12, something greater than Solomon is here. And that's because wherever Jesus was, something greater than Solomon was, and Solomon was the wisest of the kings, and Jesus Wiser still. Jesus is the son of David. The greater son of David. The ultimate and true son of David. Who instructs his people with his word. This is an occasion on the Lord's day. Where we gather to be fed by the shepherd Christ. When we hear Proverbs 13. What we are hearing are the shepherding words of Jesus. He's the son of David coming to guard us. And to guide us. And to feed us. And to uphold us. God help us then to hear. I want to notice a few things in chapter 13, verses 1 to 6, that will give us a kind of structure, and that is the contrasts. Proverbs is filled with these anyway. Some explicit ones appear today. Wise and scoffer, verse 1. Sluggard and diligent, verse 4. Righteous and wicked, verse 5. Righteousness and sin in verse 6. As well as him whose way is blameless, paralleled by the wicked or contrasted with the wicked. The book of Proverbs gives you a fork in the road, two paths, and the brilliance of Solomon's words to the reader is that he intends to allure you with the beauty and end of wisdom. And he intends to horrify you with the outrageousness and end of foolishness. And this is a brilliant strategy, not only because it is true, but because all of us have desires for joy and delight, not only for our present, but for our future. And our deep and lasting joy is found in knowing Christ. And this means... We must be among the wise who have not rejected the word of God, but have not only embraced it, we have seen as well that this word is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the son of David and the great and wise son. And through the words of Proverbs, Christ shepherds us. In verse 1, there are two kinds of listeners. 
The verse again before us, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. He's talking about two kinds of listeners who hear the same thing. Hearing the same thing. It reminds me in one sense of the parable of the soils and the sower, where the same kind of thing is dispensed, but the reception is not the same across the board. And here are two kinds of listeners who hear the same thing. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Two kinds of listeners. The the scoffer would be the foolish son. He doesn't have to say that. He's identified a wise son at the beginning. He expects you to imply that the foolish son is identified by his scoffing response to what is true. So what's being given to both? Well, the answer is father's instruction, and this doesn't imply the mother doesn't give instruction or something like that. Now, we know the father and mother's instruction are in view throughout Proverbs. One instance is in chapter 1. Chapter 1, 8, hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. So this isn't to say the father instructs the child and the mother doesn't. This is to say that father as a parent is instructing. And yes, we see elsewhere in Proverbs, both father and mother are involved in the spiritual nurturing of their child. And I say spiritual nurturing with emphasis. What's this instruction about? Well, we didn't just show up to Proverbs 13 without any context. There's 12 chapters preceding this of biblical wisdom, and especially nine chapters that are rooted in the idea, and not only that, but opening and closing the whole book of Proverbs with the idea of fearing the Lord. Instruction from the father and teaching from the mother to the child, this is God-shaped instruction about living in the fear of the Lord in God's world. This is not ambiguous instruction. You might say, well, yeah, I mean, all parents instruct their children about all manner of different things. That's true, but there's a context for chapter 13, 1. It's the book of Proverbs. And the context for this verse ensures us that this is instruction about rearing and nurturing people spiritually to know God and walk wisely with God. A wise son hears his father's instruction. But a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So it turns out all of us need instruction and all of us need correction. And sometimes that instruction involves correction and rebuke. It is not an insult, but rather a a right and true observation of our hearts that the Bible makes all over the place. That all of us do not come into this world knowing what would be wise and best for our soul and in honoring God. We need instruction. We need biblical instruction and truth. Now, the two responses here give us the common reaction that we see both present and past to the word of God. There is a hearing, but not just a physical hearing. Hearing there means to really hear in the sense of obey. This is not just to take it in. The scoffer listens as well. So this is a certain kind of hearing. The scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So the first, language, the first word hears and the second phrase does not listen. This is about obedience. This is hearing in the sense of obeying. Every parent has felt this tension as well. You give an instruction to a child, the child does not do it, and you say, didn't you hear what I said? And they, they may have actually heard what you said unless they were terribly distracted. But sometimes there's a hearing without a response. And then if the child listens... And obeys, you, would, you might think to yourself, okay, they heard what I said. 
Because obedience is in itself a kind of proof of a hearing this book is concerned with. There's a contrast in the second half of the verse. While the wise son hears his father's instruction, and that's what identifies him as the wise son, the scoffer has a different response, and it shows the attitude of the scoffer with not listening. A rejection of this wisdom or instruction. Correction is given and refused. The scoffer mocks, huffs at the idea of correction. The scoffer doesn't want instruction or rebuke. The scoffer is already convinced of his or her own way. So here is this other person in my life coming with instruction when I already know what I'm doing. A parent might experience this with the child expressing and responding with sighs and rolling eyes and mouthing off and all the rest. Where there is a scoffing in response to instruction. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And this instruction or rebuke is, again, not ambiguous, but what it means to walk wisely knowing God in God's world. So here's the implication. Fathers and mothers, we must instruct our children. Give them something to hear. And I don't mean about just all the generalities of life. There's a necessity and a fittedness to all of that too. I'm talking about what it means to know God. And to follow God. And to walk wisely in God's world. We must instruct our children from the scriptures. Correction and rebuke are part of faithful parenting. We talk about God. And we talk about all things in relation to God. Because this is God's world. Parents. You are parenting people who will stand before God. You can tell when you're giving them instruction for their lives, but they aren't seeking to submit to it. Their speech or their behavior might be evident initially or eventually. But as well, parents, we have to recognize we ourselves are recipients of instruction and correction from the Word of God. So I would encourage us to consider that not only are we to be those who are teaching our children what it means to know God and walk with God, but they need to see in our own lives, we ourselves pursuing knowing and following Christ. We are people who will stand before God as well. And children can smell hypocrisy. In fact, hypocrisy is quite suffocating in a home. Here you are instructing your children to know God and walk wisely with God when the pattern of your life is one of rebellion and foolishness. May it never be. So we could ask the adults in the room, have you ever learned the lesson of chapter 13, 1? When you look back, if you were a child who received, uh, I'm sorry, if you were a child who refused instruction, have you become an adult who also refuses instruction? If you were a youth who refused correction and rebuke, have you become an adult who does not listen to correction and rebuke? And when it's given, you refuse it. Maybe you can tell instead, actually, that though you were foolish as a child, and though you may have rejected this wisdom or this instruction, the Lord's mercy intervened. And you not only notice the foolishness of what has happened in your life, you praise God for the work of redemption and grace He has poured out undeservedly upon you. May it be the case, adults in the room, that your longing is to hear instruction, even correction when needed, because your foremost goal is to be wise. 
You want to walk wisely because this is God's world in foolishness. You recoil at the notion of living as a fool. You don't want that to be the case. Growing in age doesn't mean wisdom. Growing in height doesn't mean wisdom. Wisdom must be desired and sought. So I would consider parents here, or offer parents to consider in verse 1. Instruction has this idea of specific biblical teaching. While we know parents can instruct children in all manner of things, does it include what Proverbs 13.1 would have in mind? Do you instruct your children about school? Do you instruct them about sports? Do you instruct them about hobbies and various other interests? Well and good. Do you instruct them on what it means to know and follow God in God's world? That is the paramount concern of chapter 13.1. In being wise... One of the things we need instruction about is our speech. And this is what Proverbs 13 verses 2 to 3 turn to next. The results of our words in chapter 13 verses 2 and 3. We need instruction about our tongues. The Old and New Testament is filled with such teaching. Verses 2 and 3. From the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The results of our words, our words spoken, lead to different things in our lives because of relationships and commitments and responsibilities we have. And your words can be thought of as a kind of fruit. Just like fruit grows from a tree, words grow out of your heart and mouth. The fruit of your mouth are words. And for the righteous person, the wise person, that fruit is good. Because you care about the truth. You've committed to responsibilities. You keep your word. You live with integrity. You give words of affirmation and encouragement. And even when you give correction, it's done thoughtfully, wisely, lovingly. This means the fruit of the mouth that leads to eating what is good speaks of The results of our words in our own flourishing. It is in your own best interest to care about your speech. Proverbs 13.2 confirms it. It's not only a blessing to others. It is a blessing to others when when we're thoughtful and deliberate about our speech and speak wisely. It is also in our own best interest. The fruit of his mouth, from the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good. And this may, in fact, lead to the very practical, physical, and material things of life, like provision through jobs and income and hard work that are connected to faithful speech, where there are commitments and instruction and correction, all these things that can fit under the fruit of one's mouth. He eats what is good. Well, don't you want to eat what is good? I mean, haven't you eaten something that is bad? And you spat it out immediately? Haven't you taken a bite of something or a forkful of something? And you thought, that was a horrible idea. We've all done this. Nobody wants to eat what is bad. What do you want for dinner tonight? Something that tastes terrible, hopefully. You know, I mean, no one's thinking that. You want to eat what is good. And this means, on the most practical sense, you should think then about your speech. But the desire of the treacherous is for violence. The word treachery is important here. It doesn't just say, you know, the desire of the wicked. It speaks of a certain kind of wickedness. Treacherous or treachery. 
Treachery is to be characterized by betrayal or deceit, which means it involves abused speech, a misused tongue. The desire of the treacherous, one who is likely to betray or tru- your trust or to deceive with words, the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Now, that's quite an extreme thing. You think violence what? Like violence physically unto murder? Well, perhaps that's the ultimate end of that spectrum. But it's a way of speaking of harm. Harm toward others. This is the opposite of loving one's neighbor. The treacherous, those who don't care about their speech, don't care about their neighbor. Those who don't care about keeping their word or speaking with integrity or loving what is true. Those who use their words to condescend and to abuse. Those who use their words to manipulate and deceive. They are not acting in love for neighbor. Their words are like, uh, their words are not only deceptive, their words are demeaning. So violence here I don't think has to mean physical death. Fools behave in ways that harm others. Proverbs 13.2 wants you to care about your well-being and the well-being of others. And that means you've got to think about your words. The desire of the treacherous is not for what is for neighbors good. No, the treacherous, they just want what they want. Neighbors just in the way of what they want. So neighbor is not something to be loved. Neighbor is just a means to an end. And if I've got to use my words to do what I need to do to my neighbor in order to get something that's more important to me than my neighbor, then all of a sudden my treacherous heart is exposed. The desire of the treacherous is for violence. So what do we need? In verse 3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. What we need then is to think about the importance of self-control. That's what verse 3 is about. That opening phrase, guarding his mouth, that means self-control. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. And this is a big word, life. Probably has in mind your responsibilities at your job, your personal well-being, your relationships. The things that would characterize your life in all kinds of practical ways. If you care about those things, you'll care about your mouth. You'll think about your tongue and you will want to guard it. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. One thing I love about the brilliance of Proverbs is it not only wants you to think about self-control for the sake of others, it wants you to think of self-control for the sake of yourself too. It wants you to have before you your own best interest as something on the table. Not because you, above everybody else, are the most important thing in your life, but to say that it's it's not irrelevant either. Preserves his life. Preserves his life. Don't you want to preserve your life? Don't you want to preserve the structures and blessings and things that are around you that God has favored you with? Your speech can cultivate and nurture those things. Reinforce and uphold those things. Or destroy them. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips, open Opens wide his lips is a way of saying without a guard. An unguarded mouth, open wide as can be. Whoever opens wide his lips comes to ruin. That also is about your personal interest. The book of Proverbs is laying before you two paths. Do you want to preserve your life or do you want things to come to ruin? And you got to think about your words. You gotta think about your words. The path you choose goes somewhere, and our words are making choices about the path. 
Our words, our speech, the way we speak about to, our, to others and to the Lord, these are leading us down a path. And you don't get to choose a particular set of words and then decide a different end point. That path leads to an end point. Guarding your mouth is something the Old and the New Testament speak of. Not just here in Proverbs, I think of Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only what is good and edifying for for building up others. Ephesians 4.29 is Paul's way of saying, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The, The wise person will think about what he says, when he says it, and how he says it. The wise person wants to use discernment and discretion. The wise person wants to factor in relationships and proximity and timing and all the rest in order to be wise with speech rather than to just have an opened mouth like a fool. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. That's someone who does not care, not simply about what they say, though that could be part of it, but also when they say it and how they say it and how much. There's a ruinous result, and I like the way my friend um, David Gunderson Says He says, restraining our words is wise because we can often go back and say more. But we can never go back and say less. And so he's thinking about a guard upon our mouth to preserve our life because we live entangled in relationships in the providence of God. And in seeking to love neighbor and love others well, I can't say, well, self-control is not that important. You know what verse 3 is teaching us? Self-control avoids self-destruction. Why do we know that? Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. Self-control avoids self-destruction. Not only do we need to be taught about our words, we need to be taught about our work. Now I would encourage Christian parents to think about this as well because of verse 1. Not only are we as adults to be receiving and thinking about verses 2 through 6. You might think, well, I'm not a child in the home anymore. But you might have influence over and instruction over and parenting of children. And so we want to teach them about words and work as well. We need to hear it ourselves. Yes, God help us. But we need to also make that part of our instruction. And in verses 4 through 6, he speaks of the soul's sowing and reaping. The soul's sowing and reaping, which has to do with work. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. While the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Let's think about that verse for a moment. He gets really deep with the opening words. The soul of the sluggard gets right there on the inside. The inner life of the person. I think this is equivalent essentially to your desires and your heart. The, thing, the place where you, have what, where you have affections and loves, where your desires and your cravings come from, the soul of the sluggard craves. That's a really strong word. Now, you might want something, but that's different from craving it, right? So the, the strong verb here is interesting to me. The soul of the sluggard has strong desires. I really want. Oh, I would give anything for. I crave this. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Well, you talk about a pendulum swing. 
Strong cravings. Boom, to the other side. Nothing. Now, why is it that such strong cravings result in nothing? Because this is a sluggard we're talking about. Well, what is a sluggard? Well, in the book of Proverbs, a sluggard is one who is lazy and will not do what he ought to do or what she ought to do. The sluggard soul then represents his life, especially the inner man, the inner woman. Their heart or soul is craving and longing, and yet nothing is the result. And the reason there is nothing is because the attitude toward work is, is, has much to be desired. The sluggard wants and doesn't have because he doesn't work. The sluggard isn't diligent. The sluggard isn't disciplined. The sluggard gets nothing because he sows nothing. The sluggard would like to sow nothing and reap much, but that's not how this works. The soul of the sluggard craves, but there's just strong desire. And that's because there are some competing desires within the sluggard. Competing desires which prevail. What are those competing desires? The desire for comfort and convenience above all. The sluggard is driven by this. Why does the person get nothing though he has desires and cravings? Because his provision and sustenance and well-being are sacrificed on the altar of short-term convenience and comfort. He thinks about immediate gratification and not anything beyond that. And what does he immediately crave? To do nothing. So if he has strong desires and yet ends up getting nothing, the result is due to a lack of diligence. The sluggard doesn't do what is best or wisest. The sluggard does the least amount of work with the least amount of effort because he is allergic to diligence. The contrast is strong. While the soul of the diligent is richly supplied... This is to contrast one who is refusing to do what one ought to do with this language diligent, who does what they should do, when they should do it, how they should do it. This is one marked by faithful work. You could speak of the sluggard as marked by unfaithful work. The diligent is marked by a disciplined, faithful, and it's not always because they feel like doing what they're doing. It's because what prevails over their desire for short-term convenience and comfort is a greater goal that drives them. So they are diligent. The soul of the diligent is to say one's life, the inner life of the person. This is what is referred to by this soul of the diligent language. And the result is not nothing. The result is he is richly supplied. Not only having enough for what he or she needs, but some to share with generosity and joy with others. This person is diligent, so they not only have what they need, they can be a blessing to others as well. Laziness not only will not be in your best interest, it won't ultimately be loving to neighbor either. But hard work, faithful work, diligence is a blessing to you and others as well. The book of Proverbs is trying to help us to love God and, love, and one another. And one of the ways in this fallen world that we find ourselves um, loving neighbor is through the sweat and toil of work. Diligence. The soul is richly supplied. 
This could also be a way of saying hard work not only meets the material goals and ends that you might have to live in this world, but hard work is actually good and satisfying to the soul. Think of it this way. Diligence is soul-lifting and gratifying, while laziness is soul-diminishing. Maybe you've found yourself experiencing this very thing. You've put something off, you've postponed, other immediate comforts have prevailed, and you are so frustrated with yourself and other circumstances, and maybe some emergency came up, and, and you're just kicking yourself, and you're just thinking, if I would have only been diligent and playing better. And we have all been in that situation. I don't want to speak for you. I Probably you have. <laughs> I have. And maybe you've also been in the situation where you, you knew, I need to do this. I need to do it now. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to apply myself. I'm going to be diligent in it. And afterward, not only are you completely relieved that that task is done, there's a sense of profound accomplishment. And that's not because you treated that thing as an idol. It's because God has made us to work with diligence in the world that he has made. We would expect then that working with diligence would affect our mind and body in positive ways, whereas laziness and an allergy to work would affect us as well. The soul is richly supplied. You were not made by God to do nothing. We know this from Genesis 1. You just have to open to the first, first page of the Bible. On page 1 of the Bible. We find that God has created us in his image to subdue and exercise dominion in this life. And that means then we are what we might call kings and queens of creation under God. Sons and daughters of God. And in Christ Jesus, our sonship is restored. In Christ Jesus, our image-bearing status is being realized anew. And though sin has brought ruin and corruption... We as sons and daughters of God in Christ Jesus and through faith alone are realizing afresh what it means to work for God's glory. To be diligent in God's world. And to know the favor and blessing of God. The book of Proverbs is helping us to live as faithful image bearers then. Verse 5. The righteous hates falsehood. You see he's getting into that place of the inner life where you're contemplating things. Where you desire and crave things. Well, see, the, 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 the slothful, the sluggard, there are a lot of cravings there. But the righteous, they have, they have a response and affections in the heart as well. And one of the responses in the heart of the righteous is a hatred of falsehood. Falsehood is a shorthand way of getting at speech ideas that we've looked at already. Treacherousness, using our tongue. Falsehood are things that are committed with our words, whether in writing, whether in direct speech. It's communicating something not true. The righteous hates falsehood. The righteous are, are shown by what they hate and by what they love. If the righteous hate falsehood, what is it that they love? They don't love nothing. They don't just hate falsehood and that's it. They hate falsehood because they love the truth. The righteous hates falsehood. But the wicked brings shame and disgrace. So one of the, one of the notions about being a righteous person is having in your character a repulsion against falsehood. 
You don't want to commit it yourself. You don't want to facilitate it and reinforce it in your relationships. You're committed to the truth. You love the truth. You want to believe what's true. You want to hold to the truth. You want to teach the truth. You want to know it, walk in it, speak it. The truth matters to you. Why? Because this is God's world. And God is a God of truth and not error. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all in 1 John 1, 5. So we're committed to walking in the light with Christ. And that means we want to hate falsehood. The righteous hates falsehood because they love the truth. But the wicked brings shame and disgrace. It jumps over the desire component there right to the result. So we've got to fill in the desire component. The righteous hates falsehood. What can we imply then about the wicked? Well, the wicked, they do what is false. And they delight and desire falsehood for some other gain or, or end that they have in mind. But it doesn't end the way they think. It brings shame and disgrace. These results come from disordered hearts that do not love what they should love and hate what they should hate. The unrighteous, they're totally fine with falsehood. That's part of what corrupts their character. In their dealings with others, they don't mind manipulating and deceiving as long as they get ultimately what they want, which is not prioritizing their love of neighbor. The wicked brings shame and disgrace because sin hides the hook. Sin never presents itself honestly. Sin never presents itself honestly. No one is, you know what I hope my future brings? I hope it's full of shame and disgrace. No, no one's thinking that. That's not what somebody's bringing in their future. But with their words and with their conduct, that's the end they're choosing. That's the path they're on. They're hoping they can sow this and reap something else. It doesn't work this way. Wickedness brings shame and disgrace. Now you might say, well, wait a second. What about the person who is just doing this and they're thinking they're never going to get caught? We see shame and disgrace there are public things of accountability and exposure. This means the wicked never intended this to be the result. But as the book of Numbers teaches us, our sin finds us out. We think we can manage our iniquity because we are fools. We think we can handle the collateral damage of our foolishness because we are delusional. This is bigger than we are. We need to submit our will to Christ. We need to pursue wisdom. Seek it like silver. Turn from unrighteousness. And live as those who are wise with integrity. That will not bring upon us because of our choices shame and disgrace before God. Because the righteous hate falsehood. They love the truth. Maybe you've been embarrassed from time to time because of words you have said to others, claims you have made, temperamental outbursts you have committed. Maybe your conduct and behavior has time and time again brought shame and disgrace upon you. This is normal for sinful lives. And it is the mercy of God that shame and disgrace because of our sin can redirect us into a rightly ordered life unto righteousness through repentance. You see, the worst possible thing is that we would be given over to our foolishness and cultivate a kind of callousness over our sin so that shame and disgrace would never come to us. 
If shame and disgrace come into our lives, then friends, it's coming time. Because it's an opportunity for us to look at our sin, to look at the damage our sinful choices and words can can cause and say, now I will turn from this. And as often as I need to, I will turn from it. And I will follow Christ. One of my favorite people on social media to read and listen to is a pastor named Garrett Kell. And some of you here know him this morning. Pastor Kell says the longer... You linger near temptation, the stronger it grows. The longer you give in to sin, the easier it is to keep sinning. The longer you harbor unrepentant sin, the more calloused you become. The longer you remain calloused, the further you drift from God. I think he's absolutely right in how that process can work. There's a kind of overconfident entertaining of temptation. You just linger by it. Like Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, looking at fruit that was desirable. But then that temptation becomes more compelling and stronger. And then you begin to give in. And then you keep sinning. And then there's unrepentance and callousness that results. So the language about fleeing temptation is true. Look to Jesus. He goes on to say, Pastor Kell goes on to say, the quicker you look to Jesus, the less appealing a temptation becomes. The closer you walk with Jesus, the sweeter His presence becomes. The deeper you hope in the return of Jesus, the more like Him you become. So not only let us flee from temptation, but flee to Jesus. Now I think this is the right way to think about how to guard our words and life. Walking closely with Jesus in the light. Not seeking to conceal and hide. Seeking to repent and walk transparently and honestly with the bride of Christ. Why? Verse 6. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. But sin overthrows the wicked. Don't Don't you want to be guarded rather than overthrown? This is the brilliance of Proverbs. Laying before us these two results... One who's guarded, the other who's overthrown, and saying, you know, which of these do you want? Two paths. Which of these do you want? Do you want to be guarded by righteousness or overthrown? Now, righteousness and sin are being personified here. Actions are given to this abstract idea. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless. But what is righteousness? Well, righteousness in the Bible is character and conduct... It conforms to the will of God. We know it is righteous because it is right word or the right word or the right action. And we know what that is because God has made made himself known in his word. He's made known what conforms to his will and character. So righteousness is conduct conforming to the will of God. When people walk this way, when people seek to follow Christ with integrity and the light with Jesus, that guards them from all manner of destruction and foolish choices. That's not to say trials are not a part of this life. No, there are trials as a part of this life that come because we are in a fallen world. I'm talking about the reaping from foolish choices that is not true for those who walk with Christ in the light because righteousness... Guards them. In other words, they are concerned about obedience. And that is on a path. Obedience becomes a kind of guard in their life. You, they're desirous to obey Christ. You know, even if their friends don't. 
And even if their child or family member or parent or co-worker, even if someone else is pursuing what is dishonoring to Christ, they want a life that is guarded by righteousness. So the wise, they want to do and speak what is wise in God's world. We have to be careful of a misunderstanding here. The writer talks about someone whose way is blameless. Did you see that? And I wonder if a flag went up and said, well, that possibly can't be me. Because I don't live a life without sin. Blamelessness does not mean a life without sin in the Psalms and in the wisdom literature. To be blameworthy for something means you've committed this wickedness and you are at fault for it. This is to say this person's way, they're living in a way where wickedness is not ascribed and attributed to their actions and words. This is not a statement that they have achieved sinlessness. No, that's not what this means. This is to say that you can walk in the light with Christ, turning from what is false, turning from what is sinful, and therefore wickedness is not ascribed to your words and actions. Because you're wanting to walk without blame. You're wanting to have a way that is blameless. Well, if righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, what about the one who doesn't care about righteousness but wants to live in rebellion against God? They don't care about their words or actions. They don't care about what they do and how it affects others. That's just not their priority. Well, they would be classified among the wicked. And sin overthrows them. The overthrow language there is language of destruction. I think we can get that from the end of verse 5 as well. At the end of verse 5, the wicked bring shame and disgrace. If you think about verse 6 then, sin overthrows the wicked, my mind goes to Genesis 4 with Cain. And this warning that God had given to Cain, sin crouches at the door and desires to have you. And we are all to receive that warning from the word of God to our lives in a world marked by sin. Sin overthrows the wicked. This means that those who are living in rebellion against God should tremble at the reality of the righteousness and holiness of God and the horror of their sin, for sin will overthrow them. It is a divine judgment. I think this is what Genesis 4 warns about in the case of Cain. The good news for sinners is that whereas sin seeks to overthrow us, Jesus has come to overthrow sin and death. In verse 6 here, the conquering power of sin has been surpassed. And that's our only hope. Our only hope is that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Our only hope is that whereas our sins are many, His mercy is more. When we think about our lives in light of Proverbs 13, 1-6, we should come humbly before the Word of God and plead for the searching Word of God and by His Spirit to reveal in our hearts how to walk faithfully in the light. But the ground of our justification and righteousness is not our behavior. It is not our conduct. The book of Proverbs is not trying to subvert or overturn anything Paul says in Romans or Galatians it's complementary the language about Proverbs is instructing what those who are justified in Christ will live like because of the supernatural new birth and power and fruit of the spirit at work in them 
But it's not to say that I look to the excellence of my speech and the consistency of my conduct to feel better about my spiritual standing. I've got to look to Jesus who has no blame or fault. I've got to look to Jesus who took all of my sin, all of my sinful speech and all of my wicked deeds. My only hope is that Jesus came to overthrow what had sought to overthrow me. The righteousness of Jesus will ultimately be what guards us and clothes us. The basis of our security and assurance, it is Christ. Proverbs 13 is talking about a life lived in union with Jesus, you see. A life that flows out of a new birth and coming to know God truly. A life lived for Jesus flows out of our union with Him. You see, Jesus is the wise Son. We're called to be those who walk wisely as children. But if I think about chapter 13, 1, a wise son hears his father's instruction. Oh, my mind rejoices in how that's especially true of Jesus. And I think about John chapter 5, when he says, what the father does, I do. I've come to do the father's will. The father works and I am working. Oh, our hope is that there came on this earth the incarnate Lord Jesus who was the wise son and did all his father's will. He was no sluggard. He was diligently and with excellence and integrity accomplishing all. He hated falsehood and he lived and walked in the light. His heart was lit with righteousness and justice and love. All of his affections were ordered and true. And this is the good news of the gospel. Because if I read much of Proverbs, maybe you feel similarly, I find myself aware of how needy I am for the help and grace of Christ. If this is who God has called us to be and how he has called us to walk, then we need one who knew no sin and became sin for us. Let's stand together as we pray.